0: Hello and welcome to the June edition of Dermatology Snapshots. My name is Leila Ferguson, and today I'll be presenting this edition with my colleague, Zainab Jiad. And thank you very much for listening. As you know, all our editions are available on de- at dermatologysnapshots.com, and you can also join our mailing list um, to receive the editions directly to your inbox. This month we've got a really exciting edition, it's slightly longer than normal as we won't be doing an edition next month in July. We're going to look at whether surgical delay affects outcomes in patients with invasive cutaneous melanoma. We're going to look at subcutaneous fat necrosis of the newborn and whether a care algorithm might be needed. We're going to look at whether patients do well with microsurgical treatment for their lymphedema We're going to look at whether facial atopic dermatitis is associated with certain food allergies in infants. We're going to look at Mohs micrographic surgery and whether it's equivalent to nail unit excision for melanoma in situ. And rather interestingly, we're going to look at whether needle-free injector techniques might be helpful and something to look out for. We're going to review a paper about a leg ulcer pathway And we're going to learn about Yao syndrome. We've got five interesting shorts for you today as well. So without further ado, we'll move on to the first paper. Subcutaneous fat necrosis of the newborn. A retrospective study of 32 infants and care algorithm. And this was taken from paediatric dermatology. We chose this paper because subcutaneous fat necrosis is rare but well described. It affects infants in their first few weeks causing benign red-brown nodules on pressure areas. However, studies thus far have been small, or systematic reviews of these small studies only. This was a retrospective study, and it included infants with subcutaneous fat necrosis, which had been diagnosed either clinically or histopathologically, over a 10-year period at a single institution in America. The aim was to describe clinical and laboratory outcomes. So what did they find? 32 patients were included, most were female, and normal weight for gestation, born at full term. Most had no maternal complications of pregnancy, but more than half had delivery complications, and rates of birth trauma and infection were also high. Lesions were red or purple, measuring 0.3 to 6 centimeter nodules, and the majority affected upper limbs, followed by in terms of frequency, the back. Most had more than one nodule. Resolution or improvement was seen in three quarters at follow-up. And management included fluids, withholding vitamin D, a low calcium formula or admission. 91% had their calcium checked and all of them had hypercalcemia, usually only slightly higher than normal though. This rate was much higher than in previous reports. In the vast majority, the hypercalcemia was picked up in the first month of life and the calcium levels peaked a month later on average. Notably, only a minority of those with high calcium had high total calcium or high albumin-corrected calcium, so it's the ionised calcium that we're looking at here. The size of the lesion was weakly correlated with the calcium level, so the bigger the lesion, the higher the calcium level. To an extent. And 20% of the patients had complications of their hypercalcemia. Just as a reminder, symptoms of hypercalcemia include fussiness, poor feeding, poor weight gain, irritability, constipation, and polyuria. So what are the limitations of this study? Well, it only include, included patients referred to dermatology, so milder cases may have been underrepresented. However, this study includes a management algorithm based on their findings, which we think is applicable to other centres. So what's the take-home message? Well, hypercalcemia is indeed a very common feature of subcutaneous fat necrosis. And even if it's not initially detected, it's recommended that serial bloods are drawn until three months. Persistently raised levels after the age of six months should prompt consideration of a renal ultrasound. On to our next paper, this is entitled Facial atopic dermatitis is associated with sensitization to cow's milk, egg whites and peanuts in children under 36 months and this was taken from paediatric dermatology. We chose this paper because we know that infants often have a tendency to severe facial eczema which can be really challenging to treat We also know that early-onset atopic dermatitis predisposes children to IgE-mediated allergies. One previous study suggested that facial atopic dermatitis may be linked to food allergies, but it was methodologically flawed. So this study looked to explore the relationship between food allergies and pattern of atopic dermatitis. The question that will follow would be whether... Aggressive management of facial atopic dermatitis could in fact prevent food sensitization. This was a retrospective review of children under the age of 36 months who were either under dermatology or allergy with moderate to severe atopic dermatitis over a 14-year period. And what did they find? Well, 109 patients were included, of which 63 had facial atopic dermatitis. There was increased risk of sensitization to egg white, peanut, and/or cow's milk in patients with facial involvement, but also in patients with increasing age and severity of atopic dermatitis, and the association was significant. The degree of sensitization measured using specific IgE was nearly 50% higher in those with facial atopic dermatitis compared to those without. However, the authors recognize. That atopic dermatitis severity may confound the association between facial atopic dermatitis and food allergy, i.e. the more severe, sorry, i.e. more severe atopic dermatitis could be the main risk factor. Rates of food sensitization were high overall in this study as patients with suspected allergy were referred for testing and they were included in this study. Other limitations are that it was retrospective, a small study, and all three allergens were sensitised together. So what's the take-home message? Well, clearly more work is needed, including ideally bigger, prospective studies. Food sensitization may be more common among babies with facial atopic dermatitis, although this may in fact just represent the fact that facial atopic dermatitis is a marker for more severe disease. This is entitled, "Moe's Micrographic Surgery is Equivalent to Nail Unit Excision or Amputation for Melanoma in Situ of the Nail Unit, a Systematic Review and Meta-Analysis. And this was taken from Dermatological Surgery and uh, reviewed by Dr. Liu and Mr. Banks. We chose this paper because nail melanoma can represent more than half of melanomas in certain patient demographics, yet little is known regarding local recurrence rates following different surgical modalities. This paper discusses an important question regarding the best modalities for nail melanoma in situ situ, and compares the outcomes for digital amputation, nail unit excision and Mohs micrographic surgery. So this was a systematic review and meta-analysis using the PRISMA and MOOSE guidelines aiming to study the difference in local recurrence rates of melanoma in situ treated with nail unit excision, amputation or MOS micrographic surgery. 20 studies, including both comparative and non-comparative studies, were included. And what did they find? Comparative studies showed that local recurrence rate was about 4.4% after nail unit excision versus just under 3% following amputation, whereas the 13 non-comparative studies found that local recurrence rate for moes was around 11% versus 8% for nail unit excision. But here this was not statistically significant. Overall, local recurrence rates for nail, melanoma in situ were not statistically significantly different in patients treated with either amputation Nail unit excision or Mohs micrographic surgery. There are a number of limitations. There were small sample sizes for the Mohs micrographic surgery and amputation cases included. There was a short follow up duration and a lack of prospective randomized controlled trials included in the review. Therefore, its applicability should be treated with caution. What's the take home message? It seems that both nail unit excision and Mohs micrographic surgery are probably safe and have comparable local recurrence rates to amputation for melanoma in situ of the nail unit, in addition to obviously having better patient satisfaction and superior quality of life and functional outcomes. Nevertheless, better research is needed to understand the local recurrence rates. And fascinatingly, we found another similar paper, um, which was published in JAD, and this one was looking at functional surgery versus amputation, but for melanoma rather than melanoma in situ. And here are 140 cases were reviewed retrospectively in a single centre. Here, authors considered, uh, concluded that functional surgery can be considered in patients with a Breslau thickness less than 0.8 millimetres, but that above this, amputation is may well be preferred. To look at these different surgical techniques. So moving on to our shorts now, we've got five shorts for you today, as I mentioned. Um, the first is entitled Topical Betamethasone Treatment of Stevens-Johnson's and TEN with ocular involvement in the acute phase. And this was published in the American Journal of Ophthalmology. In this retrospective case series of 13, steroid usage and levels of cytokines in tear, fluid and serum samples were analysed. Higher-than-recommended usage of beta-methasone eye drops was found on average 11 times per day. The authors concluded that the results suggest that both systemic and topical eye steroid therapy should be administered appropriately. Our second short is entitled Dupilumab in Patients with Prorigo Nodularis, Two Randomised Double-Blind Placebo-Controlled Phase Three Trials, published in Nature Medicine. Liberty, PN Prime and Prime 2 included adults with more than 20 nodules and severe uncontrolled itch. 60% of patients on dupilumab had significant itch reduction at week 24 versus only 18% of those on placebo. Also at week 24, Nearly half were clear or almost clear on dupilumab. Results at week 12 were less impressive, so sticking with it for longer than in atopic dermatitis is clearly vital. Prorigo nodularis is a therapeutic challenge and we look forward to being able to access dupilumab for this indication. Our next short is entitled Dimethyl Fumarate Treatment in Relapsed and Refractory Cutaneous T-Cell Lymphoma, a multicenter phase 2 study. And this was published in Blood, a really massive haematology journal. This looked at 25 patients with CTCL stage 1b to 4 who were treated with dimethyl fumarate over 24 weeks. A third of the patients showed a response with more than a 50% reduction in the modified severity weight assessment tool MSWOT, which is a monitoring tool for active CTCL. Treatment was well tolerated and treatment response was encouraging. Interesting and very applicable paper entitled Skin Permeation and Penetration of Mometasone Fumarate in the Presence of Emollients, an Ex Vivo Evaluation of Clinical Application Protocols. And this was published in Skin Health and Disease. So we always say that it doesn't matter which order they go on, emollients first, steroids first, but does it? Apparently so. A five-fold difference was seen depending on the regimen. Some emollients increase elicon absorption, such as hydromol, whereas others reduce it, such as diprobase. Putting steroid on first does increase absorption if followed by certain emollients. Putting emollients on first doesn't aid absorption of subsequent steroid. And apparently a 30-minute gap may not be enough to negate this. So perhaps it's time to alter our advice, we wonder. The next short is entitled Acute Kidney Injury in Vancomycin-Induced Drug Reaction with xenophilia and Systemic Symptoms, a case-control study, and this was taken from JAD. So in this study of 57 patients with DRESS, vancomycin-induced DRESS was associated with significantly higher rates of acute kidney injury than non-vancomycin-induced DRESS kidney injury rates between the vancomycin-induced dress subjects and the vancomycin control subjects. This suggests that the higher rate of kidney injury in vancomycin-induced dress is likely caused by the nephrotoxic properties of vancomycin itself. So that's all our shorts for you today and I'll now move, move on to our next paper that Zainab will be presenting.
1: So our next paper is Association Between Surgical Delay and Outcomes Among Patients with Invasive Cutaneous Melanoma, and this was published in the American Journal of Surgery, which is a relatively low-impact factor journal. So we chose this paper because NHS waiting times are increasing, uh, and guidance on timings for definitive treatment of melanoma do vary uh, between uh, guidelines, between countries, and we do have limited data in this field. So in terms of study aim and design, this was a retrospective cohort study using the National Cancer Database, which is an American uh, cancer database, 2004 to 2018. They excluded metastatic disease and those with clinically positive lymph nodes uh, and this is key, so they define surgical delay as greater than or equal to 45 days from the date of initial diagnosis to the date of definitive surgical resection of the primary site, so uh, six weeks. Uh, and in terms of the main findings, so they included 423,000 patients uh, and most of those were stage 1 disease, so 71.4% were stage 1. Three key results, number one. After adjusting for uh, known uh, risk factors uh, for nodal metastasis, uh, they found that surgical delay significantly correlated with lymph node involvement. But the odds ratio is just positive here. The odds ratio is 1.01 with confidence interval 1.02 to 1.17. The p-value is 0.01. Number two, when they subdivided by disease stage, Surgical delay had a significant impact on survival for patients with stage 1 disease and stage 2 disease, but not for stage 3 disease. Uh, And number three, patients more likely to experience surgical delays were black patients, Hispanic patients, women, uh, those over 75 years old and those living uh, further away from the centre. So what are the limitations and is this applicable? Well, this is registry data, data which uh, captures only hospital-treated patients, not outpatients, and so the results may not be generalizable to the population. It only captures 50% of melanomas in the United States and looks at overall survival, not disease-specific survival. So what's the take-home message? Well, this is a large study that found that delays in definitive melanoma surgical treatment of 45 days or longer was associated with a higher risk of nodal involvement. But we do note the odds ratio is 1.09 with confidence interval 1.02 to 1.17. Six weeks is what we tend to aim for for excisional biopsies, although the wide local excision uh, may not always be performed and completed in this time frame. Our next study is Outcomes After Microsurgical Treatment of Lymphedema, a systematic review and meta-analysis. So we have limited treatment options for lymphedema. Lymphovenous anastomosis and vascularized lymph node transfers are the mainstay of the expanding field of microsurgical treatment options for lymphedema. But efficacy and safety of these procedures are unclear and there's no standard assessment system yet. So in terms of the study aim and design, this was a systematic review and meta-analysis with an aim to determine how the outcomes of microsurgical treatment of lymphedema are reported and to assess the effectiveness uh, of these commonly reported outcomes. So what were the main findings? Well, they included 150 studies, uh, which was almost 6,500 patients in total. Uh, And these were largely female patients with lymphedema of secondary etiology. The, the authors did note that there was poor reporting of outcomes and incomplete data, which reduced the number of studies included in the meta-analysis. But in terms of the three key findings, number one, uh, they did note um, that microsurgical treatment improved change in excess circumference, which was minus thirty-five point six percent. Number two, it did improve change in excess volume, minus thirty-two point seven percent, and number three. Uh, It did improve cutaneous infections, number of cutaneous infection episodes per year. So this was almost minus two episodes. So what were the limitations and is it applicable? Well, there were inconsistencies in outcome measures used, including a variety of staging systems. And the included studies were mostly non-randomized studies of interventions, which, as we know, are subject to selection bias. So what's the take home message? Lymphovenous anastomosis and vascularized lymph node transfers which are both microsurgical treatments. These are, these, this study has shown that these are effective surgical treatments that can reduce the severity of secondary lymphedema. Although these aren't readily available we do appreciate this is an expanding field uh, and uh, may be increasingly used uh, in future. Our next paper is Efficacy and Safety of Needle-Free Jet Injector Assisted Intralesional Treatments in Dermatology and this is a systematic review. So what is needle-free uh, injector, jet injectors? Well these are innovative devices used for intralesional treatment in a diverse range of dermatological conditions including mechanical models with fixed pressure, electronically controlled systems and laser-based options. So. Uh, we obviously have a large paediatric uh, population dermatology um, and the authors note that a quarter of adults have needle phobia. And so needle-free uh, jet injection is, a, is an alternative uh, for these patients. So is it effective? Uh, well, this was a systematic review that examined a total of 37 studies and this encompassed a wide range of needle-free uh, jet injector intralesional treatments. This included scars, keloids, hyperhidrosis, Uh, various nail conditions, alopecia areata, aesthetic procedures and local anaesthetic administration. So many of the studies showed promising outcomes but these did have limitations such as the absence of comparative interventions, inadequate statistical analysis and a high calculated risk of bias. Only two randomised controlled Studies demonstrated low risk of bias, uh, indicating that jet injectors are effective in treating atrophic acne scars using 5 fluoruracil, trimacillinone, um, or hypertonic saline. Common side effects range from local skin infections to more severe superficial arterial bleeding. Pain levels associated with jet injectors varied across studies, with some showing no difference compared to needle injections, while others reported significantly less pain. So will we see more of this in practice? Well, we need further high-quality studies and cost analyses are required to fully endorse this technique due to its higher costs compared to traditional needles. But nonetheless, needle-free jet injectors hold promise as a therapeutic alternative, particularly in populations such as needle-phobic individuals and paediatric patients. Now, just on a similar note, uh, very recently in JAD, uh this month, there was a randomised trial of seventy-six patients of five FU needle-free injection versus cryosurgery for palmar plantar warts, um, and complete response was seen in sixty-three percent of the five FU group versus twenty-one percent of the cryosurgery group. So, needle-free injection of five FU is a promising therapy for palmar plantar warts. Our next short summary is Leg Ulcer Pathway Acceleration study and this was published in the British Journal of Surgery. So leg ulcer care we know is challenging and resource heavy with many patients not receiving adequate care. This was a recent publication in the British Journal of Surgery which reported on a new leg ulcer pathway called lupa and it compared 110 patients on this pathway with 183 historic patients. Ulcer healing rates at 12 months were 80% in the looper group versus 20% in the control group, which is, as we can tell from those numbers it was statistically significant. So these results are impressive and we've looked at this pathway and actually we're struck by the distinct lack of novelty. Essentially, it's a very clearly and nicely laid out algorithm where ABPIs are done very quickly. Compression is applied as per uh, ABPI, and if the venous leg ulcer size hasn't reduced by 50% in four weeks, further diagnostics imaging is requested. So it's really simple and easy to follow, and you can find the algorithm uh, online. Um, But we just feel that the bottleneck is insufficient staff for compression bandaging. Finally, we're on to our noteworthy case uh, for this month, which is Yao syndrome. Uh, Cyclical folliculitis, fevers and abdominal pain. And this was published in JAD case reports. So what is Yao syndrome? So mutations in NOD2 are associated with a group of systemic inflammatory diseases which are characterized by unprovoked episodes of inflammation with a benign autoimmune workup. These include Blau syndrome, which is a triad of granulomatous dermatitis, uveitis and arthritis, sarcoidosis and Crohn's disease. And Yao's syndrome is the most recent addition. So when should we think about Yau syndrome? Well, this presents with erythematous plaques and patches, periodic fevers, myalgia, GI and sicker-like symptoms and this case report described a 16-year-old female with three years of recurrent pruritic erythematous plaques and patches, acne-like cystic nodules accompanied by cyclical fevers, flushing, joint pain and GI symptoms including abdominal pain and diarrhea. So how do you diagnose it? Well, Yale syndrome is a genetically transitional disease. What this means is that it's a genetic disease between monogenic and polygenic, where a mutation is required, but insufficient to cause disease. And so a criteria has been proposed. There are two major criteria, which is two or more periodic flares, recurrent fevers or dermatitis, uh, and at least one minor criteria, which is arthralgia, uh, abdominal pain, or GI symptoms, sickle-like symptoms, or pericarditis, and plur- or pleura- pleuritis, and the molecular criteria, which is NOD2 or R702W mutation. They also suggested exclusion criteria, which is a negative autoimmune workup and exclusion of other autoinflammatory diseases. And so reviewing the clinical images of this case, we'd say that this is not an easy one to diagnose, uh, but certainly we suggest considering Yao syndrome in patients with dermatitis fevers and negative autoimmune screen so that brings us to the end of this month's podcast thank you so much for listening we hope you found that useful Uh, we're back in august for the next edition of dermatology snapshots and podcast and we hope to see you then